Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. Hello, and welcome to Killer Queens, a true crime podcast. I'm your host, Torella. And I'm your better, prettier, younger host, Tori. We're sisters who are obsessed with true crime and love gal palin' with you about cases. You can expect the occasional curse word, lots of friends quotes, and all the 90s nostalgia. To get in on the conversation, check us out at killerqueenspodcast.com. You can also find us on Instagram and Facebook at Killer Queens Podcast. And we're on YouTube at Killer Queens, a true crime podcast. Okay, y'all, grab your Capri Suns or your Surge, and let's talk about some true crime. It's Eileen Warnos, bitch. (laughs) I was going to say baby, but I like that better. (laughs) I'm feeling feisty. It's Brittany, bitch. Yes, exactly. (laughs) So thanks to Jay, Scott, Arbu, Mm -hmm. Krista Evans, Leandra Ventura, and Janine Scott for the request. Yay! I always feel like people aren't going to want to hear us do, like, the heavy hitters, like the big ones. But it seems like certain things definitely... I mean, there are some that are... They're not all created equally, I'll just say that. You know, some of them are more popular than others. And I think once you get this deep into loving a true crime podcast, you want to hear everybody's take on whatever, so... Yeah, yeah, I just... Yeah, I always... Yeah, 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 yeah. With the big ones, I'm like, eh, nobody's, we're not going to touch those. Like, nobody's going to want to hear it. And lo and behold. Lo and behold. So here we go. Let's do it. I, I also feel like maybe we should preface, I know there's a lot of stuff around the term sex work versus prostitution. Yes. And this happened in the 80s and the 90s. The terms used then were prostitute, prostitution. We'll use sex work when we can. But like the legal term for the act is prostitution. If anything comes up, it just comes from the research. It's the term that was used in an article, like whatever. We mean no disrespect. And some of the terms that we're probably going to use are are terms that she herself used about it. Yes, yes, yeah. So, I mean, you know, like she she called herself a hooker. She said that she would hook or go out hooking, tricking, things yeah. like that. So it's a term she herself used and we're not trying to be disrespectful of anything. It's just the time, I guess. Yes. So just letting you know. Eileen Carol Warnos was called the damsel of death and the hooker from hell. See why I did that? I knew it was coming right out the first, first line. Yeah. She's widely known as the first female serial killer. And what's so sad about that, or I guess awful, is they kind of specify the first female serial killer not in a caregiving capacity. Oh my. How much are women bitches? Like... <laughs> Most of the other ones were in a caregiving capacity. That's horrific. Well, and it's a contradiction in terms, isn't it? Like, you're a serial killer in a caregiving fashion. 
Mm-hmm. I love you, now die. Yeah, exactly. She was unique because of her method of murder and her motives. Most female murderers are poisoners or are driven in the heat of passion to kill. Some kill for money and typically someone they know, like a husband or a family member. However, Eileen was different. She killed with a gun, she killed for money, and an uncontrollable internal rage, and killed men she lured with the promise of sex. They were all men she didn't know. She was originally named Eileen Carroll Pittman when she was born February 29, 1956, in Rochester, Michigan, to Diane and Leo Pittman. Diane and Leo were a disaster of a couple that started when Diane was just 14 years old and the couple eloped. There are so many, I feel like, cases where, I mean, I guess, again, at that time, but... 14. Yeah, again, this is not 1900. Right. In the 1800s, like 14, my God. Like, that's a child bride for sure. Yeah, it's disgusting. Yeah. It doesn't say how old the dad was. So they eloped, and her parents obviously didn't approve, but there was nothing they could do after they eloped. In March of 55, at age 15, Diane gave birth to their first child, Keith. Leo got arrested for petty crimes, and in order to stay out of jail, he enlisted in the army. As soon as he left, Diane saw her opportunity and ran off with Keith. Seven months later, at age 17, Diane gave birth to Eileen. Diane couldn't deal with having kids at such a young age and left the kids Eileen was four at the time with her parents. She never saw them again. Eileen also never met her father. That's really sad. I mean, that's that's such a tough way to come into the world. Right? Yeah. Well, and I, I don't know. I've actually, I've seen this in in places on the internet but i still think it may be an unpopular opinion i you you see how she grows up you see how she came into the world you feel sorry for her a little bit oh I mean, yeah I, I don't think she ever had a chance i feel like eileen to me and i'm sure other people feel this way i think that's why it's so like magnetic and like captivating and you know interesting to learn about her life because she's almost like the anti-hero mm-hmm. you know what I mean like you feel for her up until a certain point you're like wow I, I you know yeah she yeah. was kind of dealt the hand she was given and then you're like "Ooh, okay that took a turn Mm-mm. yeah nope no <laughs> yeah. no there's definitely choices she could have made differently yes you know but yeah just the you can see how I don't know and if you're listening and you've never heard this case before or heard anything about Eileen or seen any interviews with her, her reality is completely warped. She's very paranoid. Yes. Her reality is not everybody else's reality, but you can see how that was formed in her upbringing, which really she did herself, but it's just you can see it happening. Not that you understand it and condone it, but you can see how it happened. Her, Diane's parents, Lori, which was her father, and Britta, her mother, Warnos, legally adopted Keith and Eileen on March 30th, 1960, and raised them with their young children. Eileen would later refer to them in interviews as mom and dad. She also believed they were her mom and dad for a really long time. Well, because she didn't know. Right, and her going into it when she's four, mm-hmm. and then... Never seeing her actual mom again. Right. Never seen her dad. Mm -mm. And I would think too, I mean, with her mom being as young as she was when she had them, I'm sure her grandparents had children close to her age too. Right. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. 
Around age nine, there were reports of Eileen stealing from her family and starting fires. There it is. The McDonald quadruple ad. You're right. She didn't waste any time, did she? No. When she was about 10, Leo Pittman was arrested and found guilty of raping a seven-year-old girl. He was diagnosed as schizophrenic at some point, and on January 30th, 1969, he hung himself in his jail cell. Grandma Warnos was a raging alcoholic, and Grandpa was abusive to Eileen and Keith specifically. Both grandparents were emotionally abusive, but Lori was also physically abusive. It was rumored that Eileen's grandfather sexually abused her. Eileen had a lot of anger, not just at her circumstances, but in general. She was known for exploding in anger at the slightest thing and had a difficult time making friends. Eileen's brother Keith was her best friend. To the outside world, they were the typical brother and sister. Sometimes best friends, sometimes worst enemies, but always loyal to each other. However, their relationship was far from typical. When Eileen was about 10 years old, she and Keith began to experiment sexually with each other. They had sex multiple times and were even caught by a neighbor, Danny Colwell, who later testified to this in court. I'm upset. Mm-hmm. <sighs> yeah, we got some Game of Thrones vibes going on. A little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I don't have words for that. But to me, that... Because it's rumored that the grandfather was sexually abusive. But I feel like, to me, her relationship with Keith confirms that. Because if you have no experience sexually at all, and you don't think that it's normal then how does that even happen, you know? Well, yeah, that seems like that was her warped idea of normal. Or that was her, that was their normal. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That, there wasn't anything to her to tell her this is wrong and taboo and really inappropriate. Yeah, and an abuser is gonna say, you know, maybe they're gonna say this is a secret, don't tell anybody, whatever, but they're also going to make you believe that that's what you need to give to receive love. That they'll... It makes you feel special. Like in the Menendez brothers case, they always wanted their father's approval. And when their father would abuse them for a long time, they didn't want it to happen. They didn't like it. They didn't know why it felt the way that it did. But they also thought, wow, my dad is paying attention to me, cares enough about me to spend time with me alone. Mm. But that's the only reason. Mm -hmm. But they didn't understand. So it's like... I think that that right there confirms the grandfather's sexual abuse because I just don't know how you jump from doing that with a sibling when you've had no experience otherwise in any way, shape, or form. Well, yeah, that sets the standard, right? Like, well, this is... Because at such a young age, if you have... And kids experiment, right? I mean, like, you know... I don't know, it's normal to be curious or whatever. But to go from just a general innocent curiosity to this, unless somebody was like, okay, this is what we do, Mm -hmm. and exposes them to anything sexual at such a young age. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense to me. Yeah, that's so young. It's just, it breaks your heart. I mean, the whole, Mm -hmm. I feel like Eileen... She's not, she did not do good things clearly. Like, that's why we're talking about her, right? I mean, she did not make good choices. But my heart breaks for her whole life. Like, ugh, it's just so sad. Well, yeah, because no part of her growing up 
was even remotely close to anything that any of us have ever experienced. Like, I'm sure, you know, it's like hanging out with your friends after school, being an innocent kid, just riding your bike, playing, you know, whatever. Like not a care in the world, not having to worry about. She didn't do that. No. Yeah, I feel like if I had to describe Eileen's life, it's like a dumpster full of crap. And then over time, you set it on fire. Mm-hmm. And that's it. That's it. Mm-hmm. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. By the time Eileen was 11, she'd been sneaking out of the house to hang out with people at a place called The Pit, which was apparently just literally a pit outside. No one there really liked Eileen, but she wanted so badly to have friends. She began trading sexual favors with boys who would give her money and cigarettes, which she would then use to buy drugs and alcohol to ingratiate herself to the people at the pit. And they actually called her the Sig Pig. Oh, no. Yeah, because they would, she would exchange sexual favors for cigarettes. So that was the name they gave her. Isn't that horrible? Yes, it's horrible. Oh, my gosh. And I'm sure in her mind, she was like, oh, they like me. They, you know. Yeah. They like me enough to give me a nickname or something. Yeah. And... Uh, I don't know. I it don't... doesn't feel good that somebody thinks about you this way, but at least they're thinking about you, right? Like, that's yeah. the mentality. Yeah. And that's that's part of the reason why, at least for Eileen, like, I know that there are people who get into the broad range of sex work because they want to. Eileen was not one of those people. No. It didn't make her feel good. She didn't feel empowered. You know, there was nothing consensual about that in any way, shape, or form. Like, yeah, she would she would do it in exchange for the cigarettes, the money, the drugs, whatever, but she didn't want to. No, and I think, I mean, sure, she she got some she got something out of it, quote unquote, but maybe that was the only way that she thought, you know, like, well, at least I'm getting something out of this. Mm-hmm. Otherwise I'm left with. Yeah, but her at least I'm getting something out of this is literally, like you said, the dumpster fire. Like mm-hmm. Just making a a horrible situation barely tolerable, you know? Yeah. Like, if you have a turd and you shine it, it's still just going to be a shiny turd. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that's kind of Eileen Warnos. Just a shiny turd. And Joe Exotic, but... Well, yeah. She realized early that sex could get her money, but boys had no respect for her. Eileen wasn't doing well in school, and her home life was volatile. Eventually, she and her brother attempted to run away. They were caught and put in a reform school for a while. In 1970, 14-year-old Eileen found out she was pregnant. 
She claimed that she'd been raped by a neighbor, but there was never any action taken about that. It was also rumored that the baby's father was any one of a number of men, including her grandfather, her brother Keith, a friend of her grandfather, and a neighborhood boy. Her grandfather decreed that she would go to an unwed mother's home, have the baby, and it would be put up for adoption, the end. On March 23, 1971, Eileen gave birth to a little boy who was immediately taken from her. She never opposed to the adoption, but she was very upset about the way it was handled. She never got to see the baby, and no one talked to her about any of the process. He was just gone. Coming back to her grandparents' house proved more difficult than when she previously lived there. She ran away again and again and was caught and put in juvenile home. A few months later, Eileen's grandmother died, and her grandfather decided this was the end of his responsibility for these wild kids. He kicked Keith and Eileen out and told them not to come back. While Keith had friends who let him stay with them, Eileen didn't. I just... Her grandfather is just a dick. Or was. Yeah. Like... Even though her grandmother was a raging alcoholic and was abusive to her, she did love her grandmother. And her grandmother, at the very least, let her stay at the house. But it's like her grandmother died and her grandfather was like, fuck it. I don't have anybody telling me that I need to care about these kids, so. Yeah, like, I'm sorry. Isn't dad an obligation to care? Oh, my God. DC, baby, and we working with something said. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. So, like, you don't give a fuck about these kids? Like, I don't know. I just, I guess it would be hard even if I took in a kid that wasn't mine, especially after years of caring for them and watching them grow. And at the very least, an obligation. And I learned from jungle to jungle what means obligated. (laughs) Yeah. Yes. You know, Mm -hmm. love would be great. Caring would be great. Responsibility would be great. Obligation, I'll take it. Mm-hmm. But you don't even have that. And then, but then again, you see here, why should she form an attachment with anybody? You know, because the attachment she would have formed to her grandmother got cut when she died. You know, so you can't you can't trust that people will be around. And then her grandfather said, "Fuck you." Well, and the attachment that she would have gotten from or to her grandmother was also a toxic attachment because her grandmother was mediocre at best, you know? Mm -hmm. Like, I don't know. I mean, I think everybody has their demons that they're fighting and they have to just deal with what they've got. I mean, you know, maybe her grandmother tried the very best that she she absolutely could. But at the end of the day, that's not good enough. And Mm -hmm. why should Eileen even trust anybody or learn what love actually is? Right. It's like, Eileen's like, I want to know what love is and I want you to show me. And nobody showed her. Mm-mm, mm-mm. Not even Keith at the end of the day. Like, I'm, I'm sure it was out of his hands, but he had a place to stay and he was like, well, good luck. Well, yeah, that's, I was thinking the same thing. Like, yeah, again, maybe his friends were like, I can't stay here. Then, I mean, okay, then can you be like, well, then I'm not going to stay here. Right. Yeah. Like, like in Eileen's world, it's every man for himself and she's just left hung out to dry, you know? Yeah, I think for her, it was very much, it's me or them, mm-hmm. you know? That's just how, and you can you can just see where that thought process came from. Mm-hmm. And all of her paranoia, you know? I mean, it just... This was cultivated. Time, yes, yeah. Over time, it, it, I mean, it just makes sense how it got there. So they get kicked out. 
Keith has a place to stay. Eileen starts staying in like a car at the end of a cul-de-sac or living in the woods. But she needed money. I mean, how is she going to get money? So that's when she started prostituting. She would hitchhike and provide services to people while she got high and drunk. She ended up in Colorado for a while, but she got in trouble and was arrested for disorderly conduct and was wanted for grand larceny when she left. In May of 1974, Eileen was arrested for driving while intoxicated, disorderly conduct, and firing a gun at a moving vehicle. She didn't show up to court and was charged with failure to appear on top of all that. In 1976, she decided she was done with the cold weather. Being a homeless prostitute was hard enough. She could get, she could at least be warm, so she found her way to Daytona, Florida. And she also decided at some point she was done being Eileen, and people started calling her Lee. Not long after arriving in Florida, Eileen met and subsequently married a 70-year-old man named Louis Fell. Ooh. He was just one man. I think I said a 70-year-old man. <laughs> just the one. Fell met Eileen, how everyone met Eileen. He picked her up on the side of the road while she was hitchhiking. On March 12th, 1976, when she was 20, her grandfather died. She's so young. Like, how many life experiences has she experienced by the age of 20? She should be 57 right now. Oh my God, totally. I feel like in this timeline, yeah. And I'm sure because of her hard life, she probably looked 57. Yeah, she, yeah. Because I've seen pictures of her before, like when she was younger, and you can't even tell... She doesn't even look like the same person of, like, once she gets to prison, you know? Mm -hmm. She looks like a completely different person. When she was 20, her grandfather died. He was found in the garage of his son's house, and it was a suspected suicide. Once Eileen married Fell, it became quickly apparent that her temper was uncontrollable. Fell denied her shopping money, so she clocked him in the head with his own cane. Oh, my. Nine weeks after they were married, Fell filed for divorce, possibly annulment, the reports differ, but anyway, he wanted out. In July of 76, Eileen got in a fight in a bar and threw a billiard ball at the bartender's head. That's dangerous. Yeah, it's dangerous. My God, those are heavy-ass balls. They're super heavy. Could you imagine, like, dropping one on your toe? No. Ow. I would be out of work for weeks. Exactly. The poor man's head. I know it. That same month, Eileen's brother Keith died from throat cancer. She lost her best friend, so she turned to alcohol to help her feel better. While she received $10,000 from his life insurance policy, which she used to buy a really nice car and then subsequently immediately wrecked, she also went back to prostituting to make money. In 1978, at 22 years old, she took her 22 caliber and shot herself in the abdomen in a failed suicide attempt. At the hospital, she confided in doctors that she'd attempted suicide in the past. This must not have been a big deal to the doctors because she received almost no counseling and was sent on her way once she was fixed up. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. Well, best of luck to you. Yeah. Not the right answer. I don't, it's like what we've seen time and time again, and this is obviously very different, but because other times it's like, oh, well, so-and-so raped and assaulted so many people and they're like, oh, Quit it. Stop doing that. Yeah. But go ahead. Go you ahead. promise you're going to quit doing that, right? Yeah. With her, she admitted to, she had, she's in the hospital because she attempted suicide. She said, I've attempted suicide before. And they're like, well, best wishes. I'll pray for you. Yeah. Great. See you later. It's like uh, when Phoebe has her heart attack and then she goes back to work and the woman's like, hey, hey, how are you? And she's like, oh, I'm having I, another yeah, I'm heart having attack. Another heart attack. She's like, well, we're too big. <laughs> right. Like, 
you're not listening. Right. <laughs> so Ugh. awful. So sorry. Yeah. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Within weeks, she attempted suicide again by taking an overdose of tranquilizers. Actually, between the ages of 14 and 22, she attempted suicide six times. On May 20th, 1981, she was arrested after robbing a mini-mart at gunpoint while wearing a bikini. Oh. She made away with two packs of cigarettes and 35 bucks. She pleaded guilty and was sentenced to three years in jail. She said that she robbed the place to see if her then-boyfriend loved her. And surprise, he never spoke to her again after that. So that's an interesting way to go about it. Yeah, it's like, you mean you're trying to see if he loves you, like if he'll stand by you while you go to jail? I don't know. You know what you got? F plus. (laughs) Yeah. While in jail, Eileen frequently complained about all the lesbians in there and read her Bible. Interesting. It's, see, that's... I don't want to get into a discussion about, these are things that we don't love to talk about. I think I can include you. Politics, religion, things like that, because they're hot button issues and that's not what we're about. But it's interesting, the juxtaposition of the two things in that sentence where it's like, frequently read her Bible. Great. Good for you, girl. And then judge the hell out of everybody. <laughs> yeah, exactly. What is those don't go hand in hand. Yeah, I think you've described in my world. many people who identify as religious. Exactly. Unfortunately. <laughs> yes. Yeah. When she was released at age 27, she almost immediately returned to the only career she'd ever known, prostitution. On May 1st, 1984, she was arrested again for attempting to forge checks at a bank. On November 30th, 1985, she was once again arrested and charged with grand theft auto, resisting arrest, and obstruction of justice. You know what, though? And here's, I'm going to use the word impressive, but I don't mean it. Mm -hmm. The amount of different crimes that she's committed, at this point in her life, she's not even 30. And she's basically ticked every box that you can tick, you know? Like, this, I think this is who they were looking for the Lucas task force. Use tire tools. (laughs) His own feet in one case, a scarf, a tie, a pencil. Like, that's Eileen. <laughs> exactly. Like, She's like, name it. I've done it. Yeah. Because she fucking did. Like, yeah. wow. Yeah. Her give a damn was busted. Oh, yeah. For a long time. She tried to get out of trouble by using her aunt's name, and police found a 38 caliber and ammo in her car. Then on June 2nd, 1986, a man she'd quote-unquote been intimate with accused Eileen of holding him up at gunpoint and stealing 200 bucks. 
She was very upset by the way men treated her, so her logical move was to turn to women. She wrote in a letter to God while she was in prison during the end of her life, I became a lesbian around 28. And they, like in a couple of the documentaries I watched, they talked about how, like, you don't just become a lesbian. Like, but she denied that, I guess. Like, she didn't want to admit it or whatever, but it was this, like, gradual progression yeah of finding her sexuality like she just didn't want to admit it until a certain point I guess and so I think in her mind she needed to have a reason she needed to justify it and again this goes hand in hand with the times that they lived in exactly yeah it's yeah it wasn't acceptable then In her new lifestyle, she started hanging out at biker bars, and in 1986, she met 24-year-old Tyria Moore, but she also goes by Tyra, and they became an item. Apparently, when they met, they went into the bedroom and stayed there for an entire weekend except for food and stuff, is what she said. The two became inseparable, and they lived their nomad lives, with Eileen prostituting in the day and Tyria working at a hotel. Tyria claimed she tried to stop Eileen from prostituting, but she wouldn't. I don't know if that's true. It it seemed to me that she didn't really care how Eileen made money. She wanted her to make money. And it seemed like she kind of pushed her to go out more. I think so, because... Yeah, I feel like they had to fund this lifestyle that they I mean they had they had to make money, they had to eat, they had to yeah. drink a lot of alcohol, you know, yeah. like they had to, they had their things that they needed to get and money was the source of that. Mm-hmm. And I feel like I've not seen the evidence of her being like, look, I want you to get out of this line of work. Maybe Eileen wanted to and maybe said, you know, I'm kind of, I'm done with this. I'm ready to do something else. Because she didn't, it's not something that she chose to do ever. It was kind of a lack of options. Got to do what you got to do to survive. Right. But yeah, I don't, I agree. I don't think that she, maybe they had a conversation about it. But I don't think that it was really that big of a deal to Tyria. No. And I think, I don't know, from what I understand or what I've read about her is she just, one of the, maybe it was a detective or something said... No, it was the guy who owned the bar they were at all the time, the last resort. And he's like, you know, Ty, he called her Ty. Ty was a typical woman. She wanted everything and wanted Eileen to give it to her. And Eileen just tried to give her everything she wanted. And I was like, okay, well, that's not... Yeah, I'm offended, actually. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Shots fired. Mm Mm-hmm. But, I mean, it did kind of sound like Ty was a little bit that way. Right. Like, wanted everything. I don't know. I mean, I don't know, but... Yeah, maybe Ty was a little, all I want is everything. Yeah, but she certainly was fine with Eileen going out and putting herself in possible danger. Well, because it's a surefire way to make money, right? I mean, she always came back with something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like, I don't care what you do, go out there and make money. Pull so, your weight, right? Yeah. Eileen began calling Tyria, her wife, she was in desperate need for love, and it was thought that she might not be a lesbian, but just might be lonely. I mean, who knows with Eileen? I mean, you know, it's like, I don't think she knew. No, and 
I don't know necessarily that Eileen's the kind of person that you can put a label on, you know? Like, right. I think that she just, she found love where she found love. Or she was desperately looking for love wherever she could find it. Yeah. yeah. And at the end of the day, love is love, so. Yeah. And, I mean, again, I'm not, I don't condone anything she's done or anything like that. It just, it is sad. It is sad because there's this hole in her heart and she all she wanted was to just feel loved. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Doesn't make it right, but... No. It is heartbreaking. By the time she was 33 years old in 1989, she was looking at least 43. Here we go. Road hard and put up wet. Absolutely. There you go. Yep. She and Chelsea Handler right, right in there. Oh, <laughs> I don't like Chelsea Handler. <laughs> Her life of hitchhiking, prostituting, drinking, drugs, homelessness, and violence had made it more difficult for her to get enough clients to make ends meet. She was worried she was going to lose Ty, but Ty felt like she was all Eileen had and was almost too guilty to leave her. And also, like, I read a lot of her clients at the time, like her regular clients were military men, and they were getting shipped off to the Gulf War. So she was having trouble finding clients. Her looks shot to hell. That's a problem. Okay. So I did not get all of my information on Eileen Wernos from the movie Monster, but my husband and I just watched it last night just to like brush up. And I mentioned because, well... Torella's husband did not know how to pronounce the name Charlize Theron and called her Charlize Theron. Because he tried to read it in a magazine. That was his first mistake. Yes. It's tough. It's a tough name. Tough name. But yeah, so Charlize, <laughs> she, I was just saying to Steven, I was like, wow, Eileen Wernos is proof that no matter what you look like, you could pull ass and get paid for it. Yeah. It's just... I mean, no offense. I'm sorry. I think that we can all agree on the road hard put up wet situation. And I'm like, wow. Because no matter what, I mean, Stephen was like, yeah, men will take what they can get, apparently. Like, I guess so. Yeah. It's it's not, yeah. It's not necessarily about looks. Ooh. I mean, it can't be, right? Yeah. On November 30th, 1989, Eileen was picked up by 51-year-old Richard Mallory in Tampa. He had actually served a 10-year prison sentence for sexual assault before meeting her. He pulled his car over somewhere off I-95 so they could get down to business, but Eileen had a different agenda. She pulled out her 22 caliber and shot Mallory four times in the chest and back. She stole anything of value off of him, which was mostly cash, and then covered his body with a random carpet that was out there. Eileen stole Mallory's car and went straight to tell Tyria what she did. Tyria didn't believe her, but when Eileen told her they were leaving, Tyria went. Eileen cleaned out Mallory's car and pitched his things in the sand somewhere. Then she abandoned his car in a different location. Police found the car a few days later, but they couldn't find Mallory's body for another two weeks. On December 13th, 1989, two teenage boys found Mallory's body naked in the woods off I-95. Tyria was still in some insane denial and didn't go to the police thinking that Eileen got her anger out of her system and now she's done. That silence was both of our eyes being like... Like that Chrissy Teigen gif where it's like, ooh. <laughs> yeah. 
exactly. Mm, I don't know about that. Yeah, that's not a that's not how it went, girl. I will say this is my failed attempt at a silver lining, which there's no way that there can be in this, but mm, it just feels wrong even saying it out loud now. If there was going to be a time for a body to be left in Florida for two weeks in the elements, December is the best time. It's not super hot. There's not a lot of decomposition, probably. Yeah, not so bad. Yeah. Better than August. Central Florida. Right, yeah. Right. For sure, yeah. It's it's cooler there. You're right. I'm just trying to stop. No, you can't even... No. Yeah, but like you said, for evidence collection. Right, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, for sure. And when we were watching the movie last night, Stephen, he's never heard of Eileen Warnos. What? He is so stupid. He, there's so many people, like he'd never heard of John Wayne Gacy. He, I'm pretty sure Jeff, no, um, Ed Gein, complete mystery to him. He, this is unrelated, but Selena Quintanilla, nope, did not know. I mentioned Selena to him before and he was like, didn't you see her in Vegas? And I was like, that's Celine Dion. Oh my God. He's so stupid. But, no, just kidding, I love him. But- we were watching this movie and he's like, man, looks like Florida. It's like, it is Florida. Oh my God. <laughs> looks like Florida. Because he's from Florida. So he's like, yeah, all these trashy ass <laughs> buildings and, you know, uh, stores and stuff. And he was like, it just looks like, because he's very big into like cinematography and stuff like that. So he was like, I love the overexposure of like the early 2000s movies because they didn't put a filter on everything to make everything look like nice and, you know, color filters and stuff like that. So it just looks really blown out and like that hot, hazy Florida afternoon. And I was like, yes, that's exactly what, what <laughs> it is. Exactly what it is. Wow, that's funny. I know. Interesting. Side note. <laughs> Side note. On June 1st, 1990, 43-year-old heavy machine operator David Spears was found naked and dead due to six gunshot wounds from a 22 caliber pistol. He was identified by his dental records and had been missing since May 19th. So now we're into the... See? Now you got to do dental records. Yeah. A week later on June 6th, the body of 40-year-old rodeo worker Charles Karksadden was found naked as well and shot nine times with a 22 caliber. On July 4th, 1990, Eileen and Tyria were driving the car that Eileen had stolen from 65-year-old Peter Seams, a retired merchant seaman whose body was never found. See, and the amount of bullets... That yeah. the amount of bullet holes or the amount of shots that she fired, that just shows how angry she was. You know what I mean? Like, not that one is better than nine, but that's just, I mean, overkill. Yeah, exactly. Why, why is that necessary? Like, yeah, exactly. It's not. He was last seen on June 7th, 1990. Eileen and Tyria got into an argument and they were involved in an accident. Neither were hurt, but the car had rolled over and police were on their way. Eileen snatched the license plate off the car with her bare hands and threw it into the woods. When the police arrived, they said that she was belligerent and that they bolted. Police found out who the car actually belonged to, but they couldn't find the woman who had flipped the car and run off. Sketches were done of both women and posted in local newspapers. Eileen's fingerprints were on file from her extensive arrest record and her prints were all over the car. Later that same month, 50-year-old delivery driver Eugene Troy Burris's body was found shot twice with a 22 caliber pistol. He'd been reported missing on July 30th, 1990, when his boss found that he hadn't finished his route. 
On August 4th, 1990, Burris's naked body was found by a family that was just trying to have a nice picnic. That's going to put a damper on the picnic. Oh my gosh. Can you imagine? Like, no. Oh, hey, put the blanket. Oh my God. Like, it's never a mannequin. Hide your eyes, kids. Oh, yeah. Well, and like, obviously she had to, she didn't have to do any of this, but she did it because she needed money. But there's so many murders in such a short time span. Well, and there's also a lot of other ways to get money. I mean, for the love of God, you could just rob them. The very least. If you have to be committing a crime. Yeah. Who's gonna... It's, I don't know. It's just, it's obviously, you can't reason with her. No. Can't reason with her. On September 12, 1990, the body of Charles Dick Humphreys, a retired police chief and child abuse investigator, was found shot six times with a 22 caliber pistol. His wife had reporting him missing on September 11th. Then on November 19, 1990, 62-year-old truck driver Walter Gino Antonio's body was found shot four times with a 22 caliber. Her whole, like, MO was to lure them with either prostitution or to find a car that had been left on the side of the road and pretend to need help. Tyria claimed that by now she was too afraid of Eileen to leave her. Eileen was stumping the police. They couldn't figure out who was killing these men. (laughs) Sloan says, I mean, a woman would have covered the bodies with a blanket or something, right? (laughs) Of course. So it could have been a woman. Exactly. There was one covered with a carpet. That one could have been a woman, right? Sure. Well, yeah, that's the only one, though. But also, you always hear poison is a woman's weapon. So So that rules her out. Exactly. No blankets. Not a one in sight. No poops in the toilet. And no... Yeah, no scary poops. Mm-mm. And no poisons. Yeah. This is most definitely the work of a man. 100%. Eileen had been killing across five counties, but she always killed with a 22 caliber handgun. So this is like the wet bandits. Oh. Yeah, and then went on to be the sticky bandits. Yes. Because killing across all those counties, had she used a different MO, it's very unlikely they would have tied them together Until much, much later or something. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because they didn't have the technology then. You know, you would have had to talk to other counties, which eventually they obviously did, but it would have been a lot harder. Mm -hmm. Police then decide to release their sketches nationwide. Tyria was worried because she was quote-unquote innocent and that she didn't kill anyone. Well, okay. I know we're going to get into that. (laughs) But throughout the entire of the case that we've heard so far. Tyria's got, well, I thought that she just needed to get like one murder out of her system and then she would be fine. And then, well, okay, now I'm scared of her. Like, you can't you can't ride two horses with one ass. I'm sorry, you cannot. No, and that's exactly what she's trying to do. She did leave Eileen in Florida and went to stay with her family in Pennsylvania. During the investigation, officers found a pawn shop that had records of things that had been sold there, but turned out to belong to some of the victims. The police were able to get a thumbprint off an item and used it to make an identification. And she had also, like, she used an alias when she pawned the stuff. But some of the pawn shop's requirement was that you give a thumbprint, which she didn't connect to the whole identity thing. Well, I think this is a 
solid case of I'm smarter than everyone situation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which is a solid you dumb bitch moment. <laughs> yeah. You're gonna get caught. Her prints are all over everything. Yes. And she's been fingerprinted because she's been in jail multiple times. A hundred and thousand times. A hundred and thousand. Oh, you're doing it the the old <laughs> way like they do at Pottery Barn. One and fifty dollars. <laughs> is that what it is? Okay. Well, the old way. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Fingerprints everywhere. Just loads of them. Every finger you can do. Just prince, prince, prince. All the fingers. Eileen had used the name Cammie Marsh Green when pawning Richard Mallory's camera, but because she was required to provide that fingerprint, it was linked back to her when they looked in the murders. She had also used this name to pawn David Spears' tools. That's a... Don't use the same name! No. Glad she did. Yes. But... Bad choices. Bad choices. If you're trying to not get caught. Right. Fingerprints linked this identity to the Lori Christina Grody identity that was linked to the fingerprints in Peter Sims' car. They were then all linked back to Eileen Mornos when the information was sent to the National Crime Information Center, the NCIC. The detectives followed Eileen for two days, but when they found out she was in a biker bar in Port Orange, Florida called The Last Resort, Sloan says like Papa Roach. Uh, Damn it. I know. it's Yeah, she did it to us this time. <laughs> We're going to get you back. We're going to get you back. (laughs) They worried that she'd find someone willing to take on a hitchhiker and then she'd be gone. They arrested her in the bar on January 9th, 1991. It's part one. I know. I am left wanting more. (laughs) No, I feel like this is where it gets really buck wild. Oh, yeah. Maybe because... Buck cherry, y'all crazy, bitch. Yeah. I hope that that got Sloan. Oh, I bet it did. Yeah. Because the the depths of her mental illness come out once she's arrested. And like the the who we know as Eileen Warnos comes out. Yes. It paints a full picture. Mm-hmm. And we're just the tip of the iceberg right now. So sure are. So if you want part two right this moment, you can't wait any longer. I can't. Get over to the Patreon. You'll get that and access to like over 80 other full bonus episodes, depending on the tier you pick. It's it's worth it, I think. I would pay upwards of $1,000 for that. Wow. I mean, don't you think? Eh. Sure. Yeah, okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah, okay. So do that. Otherwise, we'll catch you here next week. Bye. Bye. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this case. Connect with us on Instagram or Facebook to continue the conversation. Thanks for listening and we will meet you back here next week. Bye. The theme song for the show is created and composed by Stephen Toby. You can find more of Stephen's work on SoundCloud. Our logo was created by Sloan Williams of Sophisticated Crayon. You can find more of her work on Etsy. Visit us at killerqueenspodcast.com for merch and other info about the show.